morning. It's good to see you all. Um, Pastor John, today is his birthday, by the way. So we're giving him a little bit of a break today. So I got to come and speak. So he told me that what comes around goes around. So I looked at it. My birthday won't be on a Sunday in a long time. So I'm, I'm safe. I'm safe. But anyways, my name is Jezer Garcia. Uh, if you're a visitor with us, uh, you might want to come one more time. I always say this. It's a disclaimer because Pastor John is our senior pastor. And once in a while I come here and I got to speak. And I find this is a privilege to be able to do that. But um, it's so good to be here. So we're going to do, uh, we're going to continue with our series and next week. So I'm going to do something a little bit different from, from the series. But, you know, I, you know, when I come up here, I was thinking about, um, I always, I, I feel like as a Brazilian, I don't know what it is, Brazilian or, or just personality, but I, I feel like I like to be bothered in a way. So when things are bothering me or in my life, and I, and I find some of the things that I see in my own life that bothers me, so I come here and I speak a little bit about what bothers me, what worries me, right? Uh, not about you. Usually it's about me, okay? So, and, and some of the things, you know, that's happening culturally and, and uh, nationally, uh, it's been bothering me a little bit and, and taking a little bit of, uh, of worry, you know, um, some fears and other things that happens. But anyways, um, bear with me. So we, we, there's a, you, you guys remember this in 2009? There's the Captain Sullivan. You guys remember the name rings a bell? Captain Sullivan or known as Sully? It was uh, the guy that did this amazing thing where he lands on an airplane on the Hudson River. Okay. So it's very interesting because if you remember at the time, this happened in 2009, the airplane aircraft had 150 passengers and four crew members and with the pilots. And I cannot imagine being in an airplane when something like that happens. Okay, So uh, usually, I don't know if you fly, I don't like flying at all. But usually when there is a, a sense... When you're in an airplane and it makes a little noise on an airplane and it goes bing, you know. I wear headphones and usually it's like a white noise, headphones, so I can't hear anything. And drives my wife crazy because when it does ping, you know, I'm always worried. It's like something is wrong. I'm always afraid of the pilot, what he's going to say. Because usually, notice that it always sounds super tired, by the way. You just start it, and then it's just, there's a voice like, ah, uh, uh, this is the captain here, ha, uh, you know. He's always tired in the back there, up front. And then when he does that, I'm always looking at my wife, it's like, what did he say? What did he say? Right? And then I put her, and she's like, oh, just saying that they were going to be at this time, and then we talk about the winds and all that. Oh, okay, so put headphones, we're, we're fine. But I can't imagine me in an airplane getting a call from the pilot, and you guys notice that we are turning other direction. And notice that there's no place to land other than water. I cannot imagine what those guys were going through. But I remember when they're interviewing the crew members, and they had the crew members, and then also Captain Sully, which is kind of funny, right? It's Captain Sully. 
It's like a superhero. They all have them on the panel, and they're asking them questions. And someone from CNN asked a question. I was like, so, I have a question for that was uh, That would be my question. Captain Sully, do you think you're a hero? If it's me, I'll say, yes. Did you see that plane? You, see, you realize how hard it is to land a plane in the water. But then he says, no, 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 no. I'm just doing my job and, you know, take the humble and... Okay, and then the very next question, they ask one of the, uh, the crew members, it was a lady who was sitting in the back, and they ask her, how was it inside of that plane? What was the, the tension inside of that plane? And here's what she said. She says this, it was very quiet, and you could hear people praying. You could hear a few people praying, which at that point I say, duh, right? If you know you're going to go about to die, I don't care if you're an atheist, you're going to pray. Because there's a sense in us when life is really hard, and you can think about this. For those who fly airplanes, like people like me who does not like to be in an airplane, somebody else controlling you know, your life there, you know, other than God, someone is flying the plane. If you're a fearful person, you're going to pray to God. You're going to be very close to God. And there's a sense in us that when we're close to death or when we worry about something, when we're concerned about about something, we get really close to God. Isn't that true? Think about it. The moments that you're closer to God is the moments that you're most fearful about your life or the life of someone that you love. You get holy, don't you? Don't we do that? We get so close to God that Satan doesn't even dare to come close to us, to tempt us. We start loving people that we, you know, don't care for, and we start asking for forgiveness for people that actually didn't do anything wrong, that we didn't do anything wrong. So we get really close to God. We get super spiritual. We focus. We get super focused when we worry about things. And it's a sense that we have in our humanity that when life is out of control, for most of us, the tendency is to move even closer and closer. You know, they, uh, I remember in 2019 to 2020, they did a survey about uh, the Bible app, which was not very familiar until then. During COVID year, they, they did a, a reflection on that, that the Bible app, the one that you have on your phone, it had an increase of 200% more downloads during COVID time. And it had also an increase of people actually going through the Bible studies in that Bible app. People started to get closer to God. And I remember when uh, I was in Brazil, it was the same thing. You know, I remember times in the 1990s when um, uh, Brazil was suffering with a, uh, some kind of a uh, crisis when it comes to, to food. And I remember that to, uh, milk, we would go in the supermarket to buy milk, and it was double the price on the next day. You know, I remember as a kid, my mom, uh, we had days of no water. You know, 
I've been living in the U.S. for so many years that I cannot even imagine that, living without water. And then we, I have to go in a little creek by my house and drag a bunch of buckets of water for my mom because we didn't have water. And I remember those moments, people, the churches were getting full in Brazil. There was a huge revival in Brazil because people are so fearful. And that's sometimes how we project our lives when we are fearful about our lives. And for this reason, and, th and this is the tension that I want to bring to us to be thinking about today. For that reason, God gets more done in our lives in the midst of hardships, uncertainties, than when everything is going fine, in most cases. In fact, God gets more done during hardships, not only in our lives, but we can look at also in our country. And I believe God is up to something right now in our culture, in our country, because things are getting a little difficult. But we don't learn anything when life is doing so well, don't we? We do. Sometimes we do, but not always. In fact, we learn more about who we are when we are going through hardships. But when life is doing okay, we don't learn so much. I remember, um, so I have a, a four-year-old now. Um, we have five kids, by the way. So my youngest one is four. And about last year, he was riding this little bicycle. And we all went through this, right? The bicycle and the training wheels situation with kids. So I see him riding this bike, and by the end of the summer, he's riding his bike. He just wanted to do his little trike, but then he decided to do his little bike. But after a while, he's having like a little training wheels. And I notice when he rides, he just does this number, right? He goes, and then he let it go, and he goes, and he goes around the corner, and he comes all the way to my driveway, and then he goes, you know. And he did that for probably like the whole day, and, and it's going, you know, and then I'm watching this from the window, and I see him doing that. And he just drive away and doing this over and over. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Life would be so much better for this kid get rid of that training wheels. Because he was getting so comfortable about relying on that little wheel that I'm like, he's ready. So here's what I do. I just take it off and... You know, I do what some fathers do, the ones that don't care about their kids. <laughs> so I go there, and then I take the wheels off, and then he comes in, and he's like, what? What just happened? And I'm like, well, I'll take your training wheels. You don't need this. He's like, Dad, but I do need it. So I've been through that four other times. So I put him on the bike and said, that's okay, son. I'm going to be right here, you know, which for fathers, that's a big lie. Because he wanted them to have this confidence that you were there, right? So then I put my hand behind the seat. I said, son, I'm going to put my hand right behind the seat. And I'm like, I've done this four times, dude. I know what I'm doing. So I put him in the bike. And as I go, and then I'm just going, you know, and I do what every father does. I let it go. And, he, and he's excited because he, and he realized my hand is not there. And when I let it go, he looks back, hands off. I have a big smile, and then he just, whoo, face plant on a concrete, scrap his knee, and then he cries, and he 
looks at me and, you, right? And, and there is, in my eyes, I'm like, no, I fail, right? But inside of me, I'm like, this is good for you. You're going to learn. It's going to be great. There's freedom. I know that. You, haven't, you don't know that because you're living this through. So then what happens, and, and <laughs> then I said, let's do it again. And he said, no, I'm going to go back to the trike because you destroyed my bike. So it takes about a week for him to finally trust me again because now I broke his trust. And then sure enough, you know, this time I, I, I said, I'm going to put actually my hand on your shoulder and I'm doing this. And then finally he got to ride his bike on his own. And he, as I knew, five minutes later, he's going corners and then he's just, you know, he's just so excited. And then he looks at me and said, Dad, you were right. You were right. Scraped knee and bleeding. But yeah, you're right. He already forgot. But isn't that what we experience in life oftentimes? And I feel like God is sitting in the back and he knows about it. And sometimes we feel like we can do it, the comfort thing, and then we realize so much we were able to learn if we just trust God, even if he let us go and we scrape our knees. Isn't that true for us in life? Things we're fine and we're comfortable with life and we don't learn much. And some of us, we drift away from God. If you think about it, I remember times in my life where I drift away from God when things were doing fine. You started to relax in your spiritual walk. But right now, many of us are experiencing some crisis some of us are concerned about the future of our nation or what's going on in our lives. Or some of us that are raising kids in this generation are concerned about what our kids will have to experience and what's going on in our world today. That's why all this to say that during uncertain times, the Bible is where we should place our hope. Because if you think about it, the reason the Bible is so relevant is because all it's in the Bible are stories of uncertainties. If you think about it, you know, all the stories, full of stories of faithfulness, of the God's faithfulness during uncertain times. It's the times where your favorite Bible story, think about your favorite Bible story or your favorite character on the Bible, you're going to notice one thing. There's something, there's a tension about that character. There's some uncertainty about that character. That during that time that that person, that character on the Bible is living that story, it's a very hard situation. But oftentimes we go to the end of the story and realize that God overcome everything and then everybody's happy. But we forgot about that this, the Bible is full of stories of people that struggle in life and living uncertain times and God had to show up. It's the stories of, oh no, what's going to happen? Is God going to come through? He didn't answer my prayer. I have to wait you know, one of my favorite stories is the uh, story of Joseph. If you remember the story of Joseph, it's the story of 22 years of struggles. 15 
being in prison. And the best that you can find about Joseph is in the Bible, you know, because you're reading it, and it says that God was with him during prison times, during persecution, during false accusation, fear of death. And the Bible says that even through those times, God was with him. And you get stories like the story of Moses, or his mom is trying to decide if she was going to leave her son to die or let it go in a river, possibly die. Uncertainty. Uncertainty. Full of uncertainty. The Bible is a book where we can find men and women who found God during certain times. The Bible is a book that God does during certain times. Which brings us to the question, does God still, still got the whole world in his hands? Still because we look in our lives and our world today, as we experience some economy issues that you see daily, disappointment with our leaders, our president, governance, and people that are supposed to be leading us are disappointing us, the rumors that we have of war and the fear of raising kids in a generation like this. And the question is, do you believe that God is still active? As you reflect upon the stories of the Bible, the things that we have as history for us, where people live difficult times, it's not an easy situation, but it's a time for us to reflect and answer that question, if God, if we believe that God is still active. What we're experiencing right now in the biblical perspective, it's the very normal. Because according to the Bible, according to the stories that we see in the Bible and different characters, we have nothing to fear. It's the normal. Persecution, struggles, difficult times, it's the normal when it comes to perspective as you read in the Bible. And because God never changed, and God is the expert in taking care of his people during uncertain times, we also can trust him. And you see stories after stories after stories after stories over and over and over of struggles and difficult times, and God still is there. There's a passage in the Bible that I would like to share with you. It's a very fam uh, familiar passage. Um, I, we use here a lot when it comes to the communion. Sometimes when I'm leading communion, I tell you this, that there's so much tension in, that, in this passage. For us, when we read the passage of communion in Luke and, Luke and Mark, I love especially how Luke, uh, the, the gospel of Luke describes, it's just a longer version, but there's so much tension in there. And we often, we see as a celebration, which it's true. But we've got to remember that in those times, people are actually living those situations with Jesus. And for them, it was not so celebratory because they're still living the story. But this is the passage I would like to read with you. And I'm just giving a little bit of background on this. Jesus is gathering with the disciples to celebrate this Passover meal. It was something that they did over and over and over. 
And many of the Jesus disciples, they, they've done that so many times. But this time it was a little bit different. You know, there's times where they gather together to celebrate Passover where things were doing great. When Jesus was more like a star, you know, a celebrity, and thousands of people were following Jesus to hear him speak. And, and those were more like a easy times to be a follower of Christ. You know, if you look, if you look at it, and especially on the Gospels, you're going to see that the ministry of Jesus is divided. And there's a stage in the ministry of Jesus where there's a lot of miracles. There's people, a lot of people following him. And there's a lot of healing. There's a lot of giving. There's Jesus showing his powers and, and his godly powers uh, through, the, through people, through the, the people that are following him. And then there's a, a stage in his life where he stops and he's talking about his death. And in that part of the Gospels, you see that his ministry is going to change. So the first part, they're experiencing this. They're experiencing the celebration that everything that's happening is good. Being a follower of Christ is this excitement. Those are the easy times. But they're getting ready for the Passover meal and things had turned around. And that's the second part of his ministry. There are groups of people trying to arrest Jesus, accusing him for many things. Following Christ at this point, it was a very dangerous thing. In reference, you can see, I love this passage. It's Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 24. If you have a chance, write it down and read that later. But this is a time when Jesus was doing a lot of miracles. And then all of a sudden, he started asking questions to the disciples. Right after he fed 5,000. And he says, what do those people think I am? And then says, some say that Elijah were one of the prophets. And then he asked, Jesus asked, what about you guys? What do you think I am? And then Peter tells Jesus, you're the Messiah. And right after that, Jesus said to them, so you should take your cross and follow me. In other words, to be a follower of Christ, it's going to become a hard thing. Those are excitement, exciting times to follow me, but now you have to pay the price. So being a follower of Christ, you have to pay a price. It's not always easy. And I remember when I first accepted Christ, and we had uh, uh, someone in our youth group, and I remember people saying, if you accept Christ, you know, you have a hole in your heart that perfectly can fit with the gospel. God is just waiting for uh, a spot on your heart where Jesus can fill, Right? And then once you do that, you make a decision to follow Christ, life is going to be great. And then the very next thing that happened, you know, I, have to, uh, I, asked, I made a decision to follow Christ, and then I go to school, and then I have to tell all my friends that I can't go to a party because I became a Christian. And I'm like, this is no fun. People make fun of you. And then and, and I, I said, either that preacher lied to me, or the Bible is lying to me. Praise God, I went to the Bible and I said, that's not true. Being a follower of Christ, you have to pay a price. There's so many good things about it, obviously. It's the peace of God. It's trusting someone and having joy in your heart, even when you're persecuted for your faith. But it wasn't an easy thing. And I remember 
few of my friends that we invited to come to church, right away, me and my best friend were telling him, it's like, hey, you know what? This is awesome. You're going to have peace with God. Life is going to be better. But it's not going to be easy. And there's a huge difference. And some of my friends did not want to follow Christ for that reason. The, the price to pay was too big for them. You know, I, I always think about uh, Brazilians are very skeptical. And I'll tell you the story. So we're, when people come to you and give you a, uh, something that's easy, you know, I, I think because we experience so many things culturally. But when people start saying things that are easy, that things are going to pass or easy things for you, you always say, huh, what's the catch? Right? And do you, do you guys remember, there is a commercial I remember in the 90s about the Jinsu 2000. It was a knife that could cut through shoe, rocks, and still cut sliced tomatoes like nothing else. And I remember, I, was like, I don't believe that. You know, I'm, so Brazilians are very that way, very skeptical. They've got to see it. You know, I, I don't know if because there's so much oppression growing up. I don't know. But my wife, she has this idea to have an orchard in our house, uh, in our yard. And then she's putting a lot of work into it. And I just walk by. And I'm very, I don't know. I ask forgiveness for that when I do those things. But I'm like, why are you doing that? And she's like, oh, you know, we're doing tomatoes and uh, potatoes. We're going to raise potatoes. We're going to do this orchard. And she's so excited about it. I'm like, oh, great. Okay. It's not going to grow. You know, I'm a very encouraging person. So she's so excited. And this is what I love about my wife. She's so excited about things. And I'm not good about getting excited about things. And she's doing all this work. And she's putting water, irrigation system. You know, she's working with her dad. And they're doing all this thing, you know. She put a 15 potatoes into this orchard. By the end of the season, we got 15 potatoes. You know, and then I'm like, ha, you know, and I'm just not, shouldn't be doing that. And then our neighbor, he had this huge orchard, and, you know, he's pouring, I mean, you see, like, dumb trucks coming in. I mean, this guy's putting a lot of time into it, and it was like a whole entire summer and I'm like what is this guy's doing and then he raised above the ground and he's put and then in the season this guy has corn and then you know he's looked like this farmer just put a, like a corn in his pocket and eating some of the vegetables and then as we walk by he's like you guys want some you know and he gives it to us and but I I tell my wife it's like so you still want to keep doing that and she's like well I, I guess not you know this is this is a hardship there's no easy thing. There's no just putting like a few potatoes and then it's going to grow. And then this Christmas she asked for a gift. It was a hydro, what is it called? Like those plants, that uh, machine, I think I wrote here, like hydroponics. It's a machine that actually you can raise uh, tomatoes inside of the house. And then she tells me, it's like, okay, that's what I want for Christmas. Like, okay. You know, I gave it to her. And my house looked like a jungle, has tomato plants all over the place, you know, and, and it's all over the place with green tomatoes, and she's so excited about it. And I come, I was like, is, are we going to have $100 worth of tomatoes in this house? Because, you know, that's how much you pay for the machine. So I'm very good at encouraging my wife on things. But anyways, and I don't even like tomatoes, so, but... 
shortcuts. We think sometimes faith is that. We're sold into a lie that being a Christian is going to be an easy thing. But it's a hardship. Following Christ is a sacrifice. And at this point, he, Jesus started to talk about his death. And last and last people were following Jesus. And here's the inter- interesting thing about this. The disciples were probably thinking the same things we are. As they're heading to this meeting, to the Last Supper, to get together with Jesus, they've been hearing so many things about his death that they're probably thinking the same thing we're thinking. If we are followers of Christ, things supposed to be better, not get worse. What happened to the miracles? What happened to the great things? Why we have to endure Jesus talking about his death? And, he, and by the way, why we're going to Jerusalem anyways? Isn't that the place that we're supposed to die? So why are we going there, Jesus? If God is with you, working, moving around you, things are supposed to get better. That's what we think, and that's what the disciples were thinking. More certainties, not less. So here's what happened. They sneak into the night and have this upper room to have the Passover, a hidden place, a strange place, very weary situation. And if the whole thing was not bad enough, Jesus started a conversation, kind of very anticlimactic, and here it is. Mark chapter 14, verse 17 to 18 says this. I want you to read this with the in, with in your heart. The intensity of that, what that story meant to the disciples. Okay, I know you read so many times, but this time is different. When the evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While, they're, while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. Notice that the momentum shift. He already started at the table. It's kind of like someone going to your house and invited to come and having Thanksgiving meal, which is bigger for us. And right away, people start talking about how you're eating. Much more deeper than that, he's talking about betraying. It's a very negative conversation that Jesus is having with them. The setting is a, it's a supper that's supposed to be a huge celebration called the Passover, which celebrates God's deliverance. In the most sacred celebration, Jesus takes the time to talk about how bad things are going to be. And then verse 19, they were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, Surely, you don't mean me. You don't mean me. It's not me. Is that me? I don't think it's me. I'm not going to do that. Verse 20 and 21. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it's written about him, but woe to men, to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he not be born. It would be better for him not to be born. So much 
tension, so much negativity. That's why during uncertain times, the Bible is a place to go. This story, it's not a story of happiness, of rich people having fun, and things went great, and we're having this meal, and we're all excited. If you read that story in, in, in Luke, he's talking about even the disciples were trying to decide who's going to be the first one sitting next to him at the table, or uh, actually when he, he will die, then he'll be in heaven. They're fighting who's going to be next to him. So there's so much tension, so much fear. And right now we are living this idea of uncertainties, uncertain times, and uncertainties in our lives. But God somehow still got the whole world in his hands. Do you believe that? In every story you read in the Bible, it seems like it's been out of control. When the momentum has backwards, like stories on the Last Supper that we were just reading, it seems like they're going from a so excitement moment to all of a sudden things are not doing so well. And it looked like God lost control. When it looks like the activity of God has disappeared and the bad guys won. Then you read in the Bible, in the end of every story, through extraordinary uncertainty, God is still got the whole world in his hands. And nothing, guys, nothing has changed today. He still got the whole world in his hands. Verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Very different moment. Very difficult. Here it is, Jesus again talking about his death. What do you mean about your body? Are you supposed to die? And Jesus has been talking to them about that for a while. But you often think that because you were with Jesus, life's supposed to be better, which is how I would feel if I was there. Verse 23, Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. And Jesus is already referring to an event that's going to happen at one point where he's going to be nailed to the cross, and he's supposed to die for the sins of humanity. So much tension. So much drama. I imagine that the disciples were very discouraged. Thinking that things are getting worse. This whole thing about the gospel, it's probably not true. There's no hope into this. And things got even worse. Verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. For it is written... I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into the Galilee. And you see, this moment that's supposed to be a celebration for all the things that they have done, it became a time to say goodbye, and this is it. 
And the worst part about it, a lot of them totally missed the idea because Jesus had said that he was going to be risen. And they totally forgot about it. And verse 28 says, But after I have risen, I'll go ahead of you into the Galilee. And Peter is like, enough of this. I'm not going to let you die. I'm not going to do that. And we see that. Because if God is with you, you don't supposed to die. We'll stay with you. We'll protect you. And you see that. Verse 29, Peter declared, even if I... All, even if all fall away, I will not. I will not. In verse 31, but Peter insisted emphatically, okay, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Disown you. And all the others said the same. Enough of this. We will get, we'll protect you. We're not going to let that happen. Even if everyone abandoned you, I will not. I'll stick with you to the end. And we all know the story. The same man with all this faith will deny Jesus. Not just once, but three times. Three times. And here's the question for you and me. As we experience in our life extremely uncertainties in our lives, in our families, uncertainties in our country, Issues that we have in our jobs. The fears that we have raising children in our culture. With our leaders. With Congress, government. With economy. You can fill the blank. With all this uncertainty. Can you trust God? Can you maintain faith in God when there is absolutely no evidence of his activity in your life, in our culture, in our country. Can you still trust God even if you cannot feel God by faith? I imagine if you came months later the disciples of Jesus and asked this question. When was the darkest moment as a follower of Christ? Peter, when was the hardest part of falling Christ? I imagine that he would say, hey, it start off at the Last Supper. That was the darkest moment for us. When we thought that we fail. When we thought that falling Christ wouldn't get us anywhere. But I think if you ask Peter... When it was the best moment, the highlight, like months after, and ask Peter, when it was the highlight, when God was doing his greatest work, he would say, when it seems to be the worst, the times that God seems absent, the darkest hour, God was doing his greatest work. The story of our salvation was birthed during extraordinary darkness and uncertainty. When it seems to them the darkest hour, it's when God was doing his greatest work. When Jesus died on a cross, the whole history of mankind was changed forever because of his death and resurrection. 
But for them who are leaving the story, it was the darkest moment. Peter, he went back fishing. He thought this whole thing failed. He went back fishing. And you know what Jesus did? If it's me, after all he did, all the disciples did, and I have one more, more encounter with them after the Last Supper. You see them at Last Supper. And then you're going to see them again after the resurrection. It says in the Bible that Peter and the disciples were fishing. And Jesus comes to the shore. And they didn't recognize him at first. And then Jesus says, friends. And invite them to throw their nets to the right side. And the Bible says they caught a lot of fish. Which reminds them of the story in the beginning. The first time they met Jesus. And they come to the shore. And they saw coals. There's a fire prepared for them. And Jesus had bread and a fish prepared for them. What I love about that is how our God is. Because if it's me, when I see Peter, I'm, I would say, you got to be kidding me. I wouldn't say, friend, come here, eat with me. You know what that tells us? That God understands us. He understands our fears. He understands our insecurities. And instead of judging us, he prepares breakfast. But the question, the greatest thing begins and the biggest messes, the most amazing work of God happens during times of personal and national brokenness. I believe in that. Can you trust God? Can you trust God even when you don't see his hand? Can you do that? Can you do that? In the most darkest moment for the disciples, God had the highlight of his ministry. He was preparing a place for us. He was preparing salvation for us in the darkest, darkest moment. I want to pray with you. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus as we come before you. We humble before you. The Bible says that if we humble, if we humble ourselves before you, you're going to hear our prayer. And that's why we come with a humble heart. In the pain that our world is facing today, and the rumors of war, and the fears that we have, the insecurities that we have, we give it to you. Help us to trust you even when it looks like we're living the darkest, darkest moments of our lives. And during those uncertain times, we trust in you. In Jesus' name.